A random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter, what are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Ed Piscor from Cartoonist Kayfabe, Cartoonist Behind, Red Room Comics, Hip Hop Family Tree, X-Men Grand Design, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, thar, social medias. Like it or not, here it comes. Ready or not, here I come. The Fugees. Yeah. Anyway, go on Facebook, Twitter. Sure. Go on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at... The Marvelists. You can find us on individual social media. Myself on Instagram and Twitter, at Peter Melnick. And I don't know why, but I'm on TikTok, at Peter Melnick, but better. Because somebody else took that name, the at Peter Melnick. And I'm the only person that follows them, so I look like an asshole. It's pretty great. But anyway, you can also find Eddie Wilson on social media. At Eddie9193 on the Instagram. And also, he's on Facebook. Find the guy with the sunglasses. And you've got it correct. Exactly. You can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, whatever you're listening to right now, you found the right place. You found the right station, right? Right. Yeah. You can also find us on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe, five star if you are ever so inclined. Broken Ice Cream Machines, McDonald's, etc., etc. The joke never gets old. It never gets old. It keeps on happening and happening. You can also find us on YouTube where we uh, have, you know, episodes there. Hit the bell and all the other bullshit, you know, whatever. I don't know how that works. Just bing, hit the bell. Hit the bell with a hammer, like a Triple H-style hammer. Bang, sledgehammer. Anyway, you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Marvelists. Help support the show for as little as $3 a month to as much as... A lot. Yes, that's the number I was going for. For $3 and up, you end up getting early access to episodes 24 hours before the release, such as this one and others. You can also get for $5 and up our fantastic voyage where Eddie Wilson and myself talk about all 102 issues, plus annuals, plus crossovers, plus whatever our little hearts desire of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's iconic, legendary... You're supposed to say fantastic. Fantastic. Good enough. Fantastic run of the Fantastic Four. Also, we have the new show. What is it called, Eddie? You haven't read that? What haven't I read? That's the name of the show. I get it. The joke never gets old either. But that show where Eddie Wilson discovers comics he's never read. You can also listen to what else? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. RSS, we're there. Yeah, well, no, we were still talking about Patreon, but I don't know where I was going with that. We're professionals, consummate professionals. But, well, at least you already. You know. So you say. And, yeah, belowthecollar.com slash themarvelists. If you've made it this far, you are, in fact, dad joke immune, and God willing, you'll buy the T-shirt at belowthecollar.com slash themarvelists. Yeah. So I could get one in there. So, ladies and gentlemen, joining us on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with one half of the YouTube channel Cartoonist Kayfabe. He is the man responsible for Hip Hop Family Tree, X-Men Grand Design, WYSIWYG. He did some work on American Splendor. He has also given us Red Room, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit. 
<laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Ed Pisker. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. And uh, I must say, Jimmy and I are going to have to work more on a tour after what I just heard the past couple of minutes. <laughs> uh, Cut yeah. to the quick. I like this guy already. He's got my first name, so there. <laughs> so first off, Red Room is a project that I'm going to hand it over to Eddie right now to literally look at for the first time ever, and I get to hear live reactions of his response to the, I, I would say, very family-friendly uh, material. Would you, Ed? What kind of family are we talking about? <laughs> the anti-social the network. Right. I was going there. I was going to Adam's family. Uh, you you know, go with the Wyatt family. You know, well, everyone's work. I remember this this one uh, drive where uh, Jim Rugg, Tom Shields, and myself, we, we were heading down to uh, to North Carolina for Heroes Con, and uh, I don't even know how it came up, but I posed the question, like, who's the freakier family? Who would you be scared of more, man, the, the Munsters or the Adams family? And and Tom had an answer immediately, and he was like, well, of course, it's the Adams family, man, because, like, the Munsters, it's a Frankenstein and it's Dracula, like, you understand those, you stay away from those, man, but the Adams family... They're psychopaths, man. Like, you don't know what, what they're about. Of course, they're the scariest ones. And I just absolutely loved that he had an answer ready to go at a, at a moment's notice, man. Pugsley and Wednesday alone, they, they plot and they do all sorts of sinister little things. Whereas, you know, the characters on the monsters, they're just a standard happy family that everyone just misunderstands them because of how they look. Yeah, that's true. And I would say, you know, overall... Red Room is intense. Red Room is very, very intense. And right down to the package, it's such a unique experience. I'm loving the throwback covers. I'm loving everything about it. And what I want to know is, how did Red Room come to be? It was uh, an urban legend that, that I've been seeing uh, you know, for, since the dawn of the Internet, basically. And with the invention of, of the dark web, it just makes more sense that something like that could exist. Uh, I don't I don't quite think it does right now, but I'm sure they'll solve that problem and we'll have a new atrocity on our hands to deal with in real life at some point. But uh, I was reading this Stephen King book, uh, Dance Macabre, and nonfiction book, he's going through, you know, a lot of the, the, the like, history's, you know, greatest horror works in every medium, so radio shows, TV shows, feature films, novels, pulps, comics, all of that stuff, man. And you go through that book, and a very, very, very clear pattern develops because he kind of talks about what was going on in the, in the zeitgeist when these works came out that probably helped propel them into uh, this sort of, you know, popular status that they, that they achieved or whatever. And I just started thinking in those terms a little bit, like what is a good modern horror possibility that I haven't seen explored in any interesting way? Uh, you know, something that couldn't have even existed 10 years ago or something. And, you know, the dark web, which provides anonymity for the most part for the user, cryptocurrency, which is very launderable and hard to trace if you know what you're doing, you know, screws up a paper trail if the feds can typically hang their hats on when building a case. A lot of the parts for Red Rooms to exist are out there, 
in the real world today. So that's the kind of story engine behind the title, you know, and uh, each issue is, you know, completely self-contained story dealing with like a different piece of that idea. So one issue could be about the murderers, one issue could be about the patrons, one issue could be about the victims. Uh, just looking at that kind of problem from a bunch of different angles. And one of the things about Rib Room is the look of the characters. And, you know, they're all masked characters, and I find it very appropriate. A few week, a few months ago, I believe, uh, you were posting different pictures, and as well as in the uh, letters page of Red Room, you see people already cosplaying as these characters. And as of today's recording on August 17th, New York Comic Con just announced that they're going to be issuing mandates at the convention where you have to wear masks. And... Congratulations! You're probably gonna have a lot of people cosplaying now at New York Comic Con as your characters because they're all masked. Uh, you know that was, uh, you know, being serious like that. Like that was one of the ideas for the design of most of the characters. Is I wanted it to be, I wanted these characters to be built of tangible goods that you could get at like an army surplus store, a thrift store, and like Dick's Sporting Goods or something. Uh, because I want to see a lot of Red Moon cosplay when I go to my next conventions. You know what I'm saying, man? Like, I want to see five poker faces menacing uh, the, the the sort of, you know, the, the, the con-goers, man. Give give those freaking Deadpools a run for their money, man. It's funny because, like, I'm seeing the character of Poker Face, and Poker Face has such an immediate look, but the one that, you know, the Plague Doctor mask... That is, it's just such an unsettling thing to see, and it's it's hard to describe, but it's just so damn unsettling. Yeah, man. I had this, uh, it was like part Plague Doctor mask, part Hannibal Lecter, part Iron Maiden kind of uh, rubber latex mask that has like the middle flake paint and shit when, whenever I was a kid, and it's sort of based on that. It, it had the wild hair built into it with the fake... Uh, you know, straps going around the head and stuff. So, like, that that mask kind of comes from my childhood in a way. Like, I I gimmicked it up in my own way to just make it unique to myself, man. But that's definitely, like, that Plague Doctor thing has such a rich history. And I, I thought about, like, if if Red Rooms were, were real and it was this kind of boutique black market business, I would imagine that the, the killers would exploit popular fears. So that's why you have to have, like, a clown, you know, the Plague Doctor mask is one. Uh, Got to exploit, like, the known fears that are out there for, for the, uh, you know, to use a wrestling term, to, 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 to get the cheap pop. And, you know, with your, you know, with Red Room, just in the first issue alone, I love seeing, like, little sight gags and whatnot, and also references... I imagine, though, know, like later on, we're going to see more and more references to the overall world of the cartoonist kayfabe community as well. <laughs> Maybe you know it's so funny because that that comic is such my past in a way, and I'm not even too sure what those gags are uh, now that I think about it. But like, there are pieces um, of the comic certainly when like the chat room going back and forth and and, and talking their stuff. I mean, that kind of comes from social media and things that I've, that I've seen on social media and the, the sort of patois and the cadence of your anonymous, uh, you know, social media commenter. 
that all goes into the comic for sure. Well, I enjoyed that you snuck in an Isaac Yankum reference in the middle of the chat room. <laughs> as, yeah, man. As somebody who just went through all of 1996 WWF, and I'm currently into 1997 now, yeah, it's definitely, uh, oh, I understood that reference going on. Was Isaac Yankum that late in the 90s? I always think of him as like the Nails era or something, like 92 or something. And it, yeah, the funniest thing is there's a lot of bootleg wrestling merchandise going on now. And somebody's made like a T-shirt in the style of like what the 90s wrestling shirts would be, like a picture of the wrestler and then different shots of them in action. Somebody made a Nails one, and it's kind of incredible. <laughs> I was so terrified of that guy growing up, man. I, I totally bought into it, man. Like when he, you know, jumps the rails and like has the orange jumpsuit and he's beating up Big Boss, man. I totally believe that. And best of all, that they if you listen to his actual voice, his real voice, the one that they would show on television, it was so doctored beyond belief. Is that so? Yeah, he like he actually didn't sound like that. He had like a squeaky kind of voice. There's like footage on YouTube of uh of nails with the original audio. Like they I guess it's like super high or super low pitch. That's why like when Amazing. Yeah, back in like the early two thousands when the invasion happened, Diamond Dallas Page came out, they did the whole him uh stalking the Undertaker's wife. And in the middle of everything, like you just hear DDP with a voice modulator, but it turns out it was actually Vince McMahon's uh, voice over it. But uh. <laughs> it's so weird, so weird. But in regards to, like, again, just, you know, little sight gags and whatnot, my favorite one is, quite frankly, right on the very first page of baloney nipples and tub tits. I just cannot get enough of that one. Just, uh, you know, like that, that character. Davis Fairfield, he he, uh, he like he's just disrespected at, at, at every turn. You know what I'm saying, man? Like, and that's that's what I was building with the character. It's just like his his lot in life is is to be demeaned, and you know, like illustrate that on page page one, panel one. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't comics. First off, they're so time intensive to make, right? So. There's no room for, like, wasted panels, and you just got to communicate stuff, cram it in there as much as possible, and try to be elegant about the story flow and things, man, and just doing that, you got this, like, overweight guy sitting there, it immediately lets the reader know that this fella is doesn't get much respect in, 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 the, in the workspace. I just have to ask, though, why is Pikachu on the desk? Yeah, it was just, like, this, like, sick kind of, like, you know, it, what we discover about the character, the fact that he has this, like, kawaii little cute thing on his desk, man. It just It's, like, extra creepy. It's kind of like, uh, I think about the um, that serial killer convention issue of, of Sandman, and there was, like, some kind of rotund serial killer that was, like, a big man-child or something. And there's just something so unsettling about that idea of a complete kind of psychopath that is kind of uh, arrested development. Or, you know, some man-child or something like that. Like, has the power to kill you, but is immature as a little kid. And one of the things with that character as well, that it's just, it's so ominous that you can tell something is going to happen. Yes, he's demeaned and all this, but, like, I feel like there is a sinister element to him, and we're getting towards there, getting towards there, and then it's... You, in some ways, you don't want to have that happen. You want to see like that character's redemption, but then they continue going down that negative path, and then you find out he's major slaughter, which, by the way, spoilers for everything if you're going to read the story. But <laughs> just when that, there's that big reveal, holy shit. 
Yeah, you know, life works that way sometimes, man. Like, there are just people that uh, who, who get a bad, bad set of cards, you know, and, and there is no redemption. It's just deeper, deeper, deeper. I've known a lot of these people, you know, and uh, Red Room is not a tidy comic. Uh, if you're looking for the comeuppance of the villains and stuff, you got to go read Batman or something. That's, you're just not going to get that in Red Room comics. Like, I'm telling you, I'm uh, I was always more of a fan of Wiley Coyote than the Roadrunner Man, so we're exploring some bad people, and maybe by accident they'll they'll have some sort of comeuppance or something. But the law enforcement has their hands tied. And one of the things with comics that you can pull off is that sense of tone, that sense of ominous, you know, ominousness, if that's even a word. Uh, that you know, sense of foreboding and anxiety that causes you know things like that for the reader and for myself like the biggest like I it wasn't a panic attack but like I had so much anxiety reading WYSIWYG which you had done and I had mentioned this to you on social media once like the term I used off mic is going to be the term I use here that is the most clenched asshole of a comic moment for me just that whole story watching the character go through all these things and you feel anxiety about that character what he's going to do next you know yeah, for sure. Like it, it's so cool to hear you say that because when when I was putting like WYSIWYG together, I um, really had a lot of empathy. Like there was a lot of stuff going on in in the world at that moment with hackers and stuff. Um, it was just a little before Snowden, but but Snowden's kind of happening. And uh, uh, Chelsea Manning, formerly Bradley Manning, gets captured. Uh, Adrian Lamo, famed hacker, gets out of prison, is the person that that uh, Chelsea Manning is talking to online and is the person who, who narcs her out because he's on probation, uh, Lamo is, and if it's discovered that he's talking to a somebody who's doing felonious actions, like he could go back to prison. So he's put in a, in a jam, and he was kind of famous for a minute. So, like, all this stuff was in the air at that moment. Uh, Julian Assange. Julian Assange was supposed to give the keynote speech to the hacker convention I went to. And uh, all this stuff came out about him. And he was maybe going to do it by way of Skype. And like there was just no, no possibility of that. But like I went to this thing and the feds were all over the place. It was crazy, you know? Yeah. And got to meet and become friends with a lot of hackers. So I just have like boat, boatloads of empathy for those people who... Uh, in a lot of cases, and I would say in like Lamo's case, there's a little bit of spectrum on there, you know, a little bit of Asperger's or something like that, uh, and they're technical people. Um, so to the letter of the law, as they see it, they don't overstep bounds, but somebody who who has that sort of thing going on, they might not think about the nuance that uh, it's not... A P, you know, it's not the letter of the law that puts you in prison. It's a jury of your peers, of humans, uh, who are going to decide you see, if uh, you end up in a courtroom. So uh, there's a lot of that in the hacker community. Um, so I wanted to try to, like, capture some of that in, uh, in WYSIWYG. And, you know, one of those things, it's, it's such a great storytelling element of that level of causing anxiety for the reader because you end up having that element of, oh my God, what's going to happen? And you end up getting a sense of empathy towards the character because you're like, no, let them 
maybe overcome these problems. Like the biggest anxiety attack I ever had in a theater was watching Uncut Gems 110% because the entire time he's a complete piece of garbage, Adam Sandler's character. But the entire time I'm silently rooting, like maybe, maybe Howie will end up doing something that, you know, he makes up for his past transgressions. No, no, he doesn't at all. Yeah, that's life sometimes, man. And, and I'm interested in exploring those kinds of characters. Uh, it, it, it always kind of, I, like, I guess I get it that people, when they're plucking down their, their hard-earned money, you know, uh, they are looking for escape and they're looking for, you know, to, to feel nice and this and that. But uh, that's just not, certainly with written, that's not the, the comic I'm interested in making necessarily. Uh, there, there, like I said, there will be moments of that here and there. There's some characters that, that will, will have, uh, you know, nice lives or something. But one of the things that I like about a TV show like, uh, like The Wire is that, uh, like, nobody gets the standard uh, ending that you would get on a network TV show. But you're always satisfied with the ending that they get. It always makes sense, and you don't you don't feel shortchanged. So that's the exercise I'm playing uh, when it comes to Red Room. Like, you're not going to get your typical, you know, uh, oh, like uh, you know, superhero ending where the bad guy has uh, shackles and gets hauled off to, to prison or something. But, you know, the the goal is to still make it a satisfying, fun read. And with Red Room, how long has this been in the works? Because I feel like there's a small part of me that thinks, was this the you know the byproduct of all of us being in COVID isolation? Yeah, no, it, it really wasn't. It was um, something that I was going to begin doing right after Hip Hop Family Tree. Uh, it's just that I had to put out that that egotistical tweet on um on on twitter saying that marvel should let me make whatever x-men comic i feel like and then they like responded immediately so that put me on like a three-year or five-year detour um away from red room which was actually a blessing uh not only did it make my name resonate a little bit more in the direct market comic shops which hip-hop family tree for all of the success and rewards that brought me uh, that all of that came from the bigger world, you know, regular bookstores, record shops, stuff like this. Um, the, uh, the, the five years that I was working on other stuff, um, Red Room just changed a lot. It was going to be like, perhaps like a procedural, like cop story or something. Um, it was also, I was really working on something that was kind of theater of the mind where you don't see any of the viciousness until I came to my senses and frankly, my friends were like, dude, this is comics, man. Like, like, uh, show that shit. And I thought, yeah, you know what? You're right. Cause like, that is the thing. And if there's this world where this is happening and there's competition between businesses, things are just going to have to escalate visually. And it would be, it would be malpractice not to show that. Right. And it's one of those things where, you you know, you mentioned the whole idea of, well, it was originally going to be at this time. Wasn't it so beneficial then for everything to ferment and, yes, you know, become the, the grand idea, you know, pun intended mildly, of what you wanted it to be? 
you know, it was, re- it was really great, man. Uh, I think about some like of like the great comics that never has, have seen the light of day, uh, but were mentioned and things like I, like I'm thinking uh, I was reading some, I was reading all the uh, Sin City one shots recently, and uh, Frank Miller in the letters column of one is like talking about basically the the unique story that was in Dame to Kill for a movie where it's like Nancy getting her revenge on um, on the Rourke family, like Senator Rourke, Rourke or whatever. And uh, like that story is kind of mentioned in the letters pages, but he said something like, it still has to cook a bit longer. And I like that term, you know, like because, because basically every comic that I've made was an idea for many years before I finally put pencil to paper. And... You know, it's not like I'm just sitting there twiddling my thumbs for years and doing some other stuff. And, you know, at this moment, I know what I'm going to do after after Red Room, you know? Like, and so, you know, this other idea has been cooking for years. Uh, and, and, and that's, I think, at least for myself, that, that's that's the process, man. It's got to marinate. It, it becomes richer that way. Um, talk about it with my friends. Let them poke as many holes. In, in the gimmick as as, uh, as they want as they can find and you know just make it a little bit more bulletproof. And one of the things you know the idea of making something and having it come out after a little bit of time. Look at the original version of what Star Wars was supposed to be when Lucas had his version of the script and just changes kept happening. It took time. Star Wars the yeah, way it, sure. yeah like it's completely unrecognizable from what the you know the final product was. But if it ended up coming out the way you know it was originally intended, without all you know, without all the rewrites, without all the changes, I don't think it would have had the same impact that it would have had otherwise. One of the great discoveries uh, that, that sort of that that I made as a kid, and I don't think it's to be taken for granted that everybody would know know this because I I mean I didn't, and I think a lot of people just assume that when somebody writes something like there it is but no like there are there are drafts and there are rewrites and you could keep playing with stuff until until you don't want to anymore uh and i don't know anybody who's, who made a first draft that they were happy with or put it this way i don't know anybody successful or anybody who anybody wants to read who uh you know put pencil to paper start to finish in one pass put it out there and was like yeah man that this is the thing so, you know, doing these drafts, and I'm actually including the very kind of first draft. Well, actually, it's probably like a fifth draft of uh, of Red Room with the uh, trade paperback. Where uh, I did a hundred page comic on typing paper. It's it's very crude artwork, but it's it's readable. You know, like it's not hand lettered with the names guide and stuff. You know, it's a little rough, but it's readable, and you could see what, like, the first draft that I kind of committed to paper, just to, like, make myself something that I can read. And it's far different than what the first issue turned out to be. It was it was completely a linear story, like, following a, a, a serial killer. You know, it was a serial killer story more than, like, a Red Room story. So does this mean I'm double-dipping on Red Room, too? <laughs> Man, dude, I just, I just put it, uh, I just put the book to bed and uh like i would buy it it's it is one of the biggest compliments i've told you this in the past like i've gone through every like 
X-Men Grand Design, I think I have almost every single variant cover with the exception of maybe one or two issues. I've never been able to track down any of the uh, hip-hop family tree individual issues, although I've been trying for a number of years. Uh, what else? Like, just, you know, it's it, it's kind of cool to see somebody make something and even individual different versions actually are just as good, if or if not even better, than the original. You know, like the... Uh, the what do you call it? the treasury edition style versions of x-men grand design holy crap yeah those are sort of sort of built for for that uh you know i was in that mindset because of the hip-hop family tree books but what what i've discovered in in my career is that there the double dippers that's like a small percentage of people but every format has its own audience so it just kind of like makes sense for me to do that you know WYSIWYG had so many different evolutions it was a it was a mini comic that I xeroxed myself it was a perfect bound print on demand book that I got from com that I sold like you know tens of thousands of those from my mom's basement I uh, I put together uh, a print on demand book uh, just like a, a series of, of 10 copies of it that were like 12 panels a page that I sent to all the publishers uh, as a as a pitch for, you know, for doing like the, the final volume. Because I like this idea of like a very, um, a very kind of congested 12 panel page. I, I like that aesthetic. And then ultimately, you know, went with top shelf, the six panel pages and stuff. But like, you know, that's like four different versions of that one book. And uh, it served to different people. And just a minor aside, uh, ladies and gentlemen at home, if you thought I fanboyed during the Todd McFarlane interview where I'm talking to him, well, what do you think of this one so far? <laughs> I think it's controlled uh, something or other just, over just there. A, just a hair. But but, uh, but, but yeah, I'm still here. Uh, just, <laughs> Eddie was flipping through Red Room, by the way, and... And I went through everything, and I, I stopped, so I kind of composed myself and just prepared for my input now into into what this is. But, Ed, uh, yes, I got introduced to you with X-Men Grand Design and to my... Um, ben, not benefit because I haven't gotten through it all, but I am enjoying what I've seen in that. So kudos to that, and thank you for you know doing that and a different look and perspective on telling those stories, and that's very cool. I think I have a mixture of whether it was the cover that came out or a variant or a combination of both. I'm not hung up on getting all the covers kind of thing, but maybe there'll be a poster somewhere in the future of all the different. That would be a cool thing, I think. Yeah. yeah well. Yeah. So with respect to Red Room... Well, evidently no respect for my book because you're shoving one of the books inside of the other book. I'm, it's a marker of sorts. <laughs> there's a question, there's a statement, there's an observation, there's a little reading going on here. That's what I intend to kind of try and make some kind of coherence out of. Part of this, you know, I recognize because of seeing X-Men Grand Design and the layout and that kind of thing. But it definitely is not a kiddie book. Uh, it's it's going to be obvious, but I'm saying it. The only part of the thing I want to know is, is it 18 plus or 21 plus? Or is there a gray area there? I'm, that's that's part of the question, observation, however you want to call it, or react to it, or not. But, Listen, man, I figure if uh, if uh, if a kid can uh, vote or or join uh, your country's army and get shot with bullets, they can read a comic, man. You, there you go. Right now, part of this uh, does smack of uh, Marvel tactics, like I see in the uh, second and third issues. Oh, which, by the way, I've I've noticed have a have a uh, subsequent um, unfolding, like the first issue on the front. Banned in five countries. Then we're up to eight countries. Now, with issue three, banned in 13 countries. So it's kind of a neat little 
factoid thing to pass on. Yeah, man, we'll see what happens with issue four. Right. We'll go for another two dozen, maybe. I don't know. But part of what I'm seeing here that strikes me as being Marvel-esque is starting with the second issue, you have a sort of a origin on the cross the top bar. And if I can recite with some cohesiveness and the way it's typed, because some some words are in all caps, and it reads as follows, for those who are not aware, the dark web provides means to use the Internet anonymously, free from consequence. Cryptocurrency transactions lack a detectable proper, excuse me, paper trail, providing further obfuscation. These tools are being abused to create a nefarious subculture of murder for entertainment in real time via webcam. Who would participate in such a sick enterprise? Who are the victims? Who are the customers? Who are the murderers? Ed Pisker presents Red Room, the Antisocial Network. There it is, man. I'm available cheap if you need me to do that in the future. I love it. Just I so you it. know. So that's all for issue three. Now, the question I have, though, to go to go along with this, and this is really intense stuff that I remember seeing when, I guess, certain adult magazines were out. There would be a page or so of this type of... Ooh, we got some Eddie Wilson saucy stories coming up. Yeah, and probably beyond the realm of Playboy to have the one-page cartoon type thing or a little story kind of thing. So it does get intense, but it only gets done in one page, and it's, again, part of that adult magazine realm but which is now of course proliferated into into comics in this in this dimension if you will but what i want to get at is looking at the free comic book day issue and of course it would have to be by the uh, proprietor to not be going to everybody that comes in is how did the process get to this being a part of free comic book day what did you have to do to get that to happen uh well when i was placing this comic uh, with a publisher, that was that was one of the conceits that I wanted. Man. Like, let me get the free comic book day comic. Uh, I I I love I love the event um, because the comics are so cheap. So many of them are printed more more than anything else. So uh, that was that was something I wanted with whatever publisher, you know, I would I would I would go with, and I've had great working relationship with Fantagraphics. Uh, they said yes to all the stuff that I thought and wanted. So uh, so it was on and popping, man. Uh, personally, I wanted to continue doing like stuff that's that's hardcore, but but uh, keep it keep it, you know, PG or whatever. It's cl- still clearly kind of grotesque, some of that imagery, man. It's still kind of vulgar. But uh, you know anybody can read that. It's not a comic shop is not going to get closed down if uh, if a kid you know gets hold of that thing, man. So uh, you got to submit the art. You got to submit the stuff to Diamond so that they take a quick glance and things, man. So you know they were fine with stuff. Put a little mature logo on the the cover. Um, the shops know what to do with that. And like I said, it's the most uh, popular, you know, most printed book of of any of my books. Uh, in, including, you know, Volume One of Hip Hop Family Tree, so it it it, it did did its job. And you know, I recommend all, I recommend all cartoonists out there drop a drop a you know a couple hundred thousand 
uh, copies of your comic on people's heads in one day, man, it's a good business move. <laughs> it's crazy, too, because when, you know, I was looking for your book at various shops on Free Comic Book Day, and, like, I was able to get it on my first go at Main Street Comics in Middletown, New York, and all the other ones afterwards. You know, I would go to all the different shops, and did they have it? No. Sold out. Sold out. Sold out. I was literally the first person through the door because I wanted to beat the speculatures. So... <laughs> <laughs> If I had to get yeah, the book, <laughs> I, th- I think it, I think it did its job. Um, you know, it, it acquainted a lot of people with, with the comic, and uh, you know, on social media and, and elsewhere. Like I'm doing everything I can. Like just understand that in the issues that you can buy, pretty hardcore, man. There's blood and guts in that shit compared to uh, what you're reading right there. One of the things about Red Room for myself, whenever I you know share like just picked up the latest issue, I'll always include music over it. And my music that I associate with Red Room is Skinny Puppy. For some reason, yeah, that, that tone, it's perfect. Yeah, I think, I think about, uh, I think about basically, you know, stuff that would be on the crew soundtrack or something, man. Like, I think about Nine Inch Nails, um, Tool, like, all of that kind of stuff, man. And Skinny Puppy fits the bill for sure, man. Well, the sec- also, like, they're they're just like, like funeral dirge, like horror soundtracks and stuff that like I have playing in the background when I'm writing uh, from YouTube, you know, and and like that's the atmosphere. But but I do have like an industrial bend to my mind when I when I think about the comic, like when I'm writing it or something. And when it came to uh, the most recent one that I had shared, the song I uh, specifically used was "Stairs and Flowers" by Skinny Puppy. Check it out if you have not had the chance, ladies and gentlemen. But the reason I picked that one was because when Doink the Clown left WWF the first time, the original Doink, Matt Bourne, he went to ECW, and that was his theme song there. And oh, that's cool, man. Was he Doink or Matt Bourne in ECW? He was actually, he was uh, came in initially as Matt Bourne and then repackaged as Bourne again. <laughs> Which is like, it, it is one of the greatest characters. I, I need to watch the uh, Hardcore TV episodes from 94 just because of that era. It's so, the promos are Roddy Piper-esque, so... Uh, that's sick, man. Like, like we, like ECW was not on our radar until they like did that Monday Night Raw invasion piece, man. And then it was just like, what? There's a whole new universe of like crazy wrestling out there. It's funny too because uh, a lot, like, you know, Eddie will sometimes like me and him will talk about you know the connection between wrestling and uh, comic books, and Eddie will just you know sh- silently shake his head, go, oh Peter, Peter, Peter. But you know there is a massive influx of pro wrestling and comic books. It's you know not just the fan base, but the stories and the overall communities of both. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think I've seen a lot of uh, like wrestling comics uh, in, in some recent times, but as a cartoonist, uh, you, you do well uh, knowing the kind of like rules of wrestling in terms of salesmanship and things like that. Like when you're drawing your, your comic, it's good for storytelling purposes, I guess is what I'm saying. There's a you know, show the face, man. If you draw the, into somebody's kidney, I need to see that person's face in agony. <laughs> well, recently we ended up uh, doing a convention, and it's also that we we got to see somebody there who is the grandson of a comic creator, and they they go very like straight up carny, you know, like kind of borderline Virgil, like you know, hey, you should <laughs> totally buy this, you should totally buy this, and I was down thirty dollars as a result because I had to get a print because. He kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and I'm just like, "Come on, man!" I, I love that you said Virgil too, by the way, because like I like 
I used to, I was such a hooligan when I was a kid and would take video camera to the, to the convention and just, just cause trouble and be, and be a heathen and stuff. And we were messing with uh, Virgil this one time. Uh, and my buddy had a, like this big blonde mullet wig and oh, was going up to him doing the, the um, wolf pack too sweet thing and all that to, to him and shit. And uh, Virgil was like, I can't even talk to you if you don't buy a picture. Yeah. Can't even talk to you if you don't buy a picture, he said, man. <laughs> and it's fun. It's funny though because like you also see like the hustle of like when you go to a wrestling show and you you know the meet and greets beforehand. Like, hey, you want to get an autograph? Hey, I see you like uh, the Bullet Club. I'm not in the Bullet Club, but you want my signature? It's it's like a lot of that. And you'll walk down the aisles at conventions. Hey, read my book, please, for the love of God, read my book. You know. Yeah, and I always find that the people that do the hard sell their books are a big pile of hokum, just just utter yeah. utter trash, file garbage. Uh, the, the the books I always gravitate toward it seems are like from humble kinds of creators like when I'm at the show and they are almost doing everything they can to not sell the book you know it's just it's just this weird thing man uh, the, the the way the way the the mindset of cartoonists work uh, they're just like schmucks have bullhorns and and you know three hundred or five hundred dollars worth of vinyl signage and standees and shit. And then, like, you know, some brilliant freaking dope creator hunched over, drawing in their sketchbook with a couple things thrown up on their table and, you know, not any, like, real cohesive order or fashion. And then it's like, wow, mind-blowing stuff. This person spending all their time on the craft, zero time on the salesmanship. So it's not going to do good for them for their career probably, but, you know, like, that's where, that's where they're focusing their energy, man. And it, it is. Oh, go ahead. I was just thinking, like, like what you're saying about like those hard sellers and shit. It's just making me think of like the old days of like the Pittsburgh Comic Con, man. When I, I was a kid growing up, like, it would be dudes that had like legit bullhorns and stuff. And and uh, every year, this one guy he would be talking about, uh, like, they would put it over the loudspeaker, like at booth such and such, they're gonna hold a funeral pyre for you know, insert <laughs> annoying pop culture character one year's pikachu the other year it's jar jar binks oh god uh, and like you know just doing like dumb little scammy things to try to, and and i don't know who that shit works on really man because like whenever they would like come barking at me like it would just like repel me like like just anti-sell me like like send me in another direction if like some old ass dude is like barking at me to come check out their comic yeah that bullhorn thing had to go by fast i think i mean that's not that's not right that's just too darn loud you know but, oh, yeah. but now you have to beware the bowl of candy that's in front of them there maybe that's the enticement <laughs> I, perhaps. i've seen those a lot lately yeah what a great yeah, thing to sure. hand, what a great thing to hand out in a time during you know social distancing and not being close to people here take food we touched yeah, on too right yeah, that's got to be that's got to be over. I think. Man. Before we get too far away from it, this is a question about the character of Poker Face, of course. And I don't think that Poker Face is a name that's I really, copyrighted or anything, because right I, away I went to you know Lady Gaga. Yes, so I knew I'm, he was going there. Of course he did. Yes, and then looking at the character's face, thinking, oh, I wonder if those card symbols actually change around, like you know Rorschach. But I guess they don't. <laughs> Ooh, nah, he made a Watchmen uh, reference. So Watchmen, that's right. So I'm you know so I am reading. I'm about a quarter of the way through. <laughs> That 12-issue run, so there you go. But, We're going to be uh, recording uh, recording an episode of Kayfabe for uh, Chapter 8 uh, in a couple of days. Nice. 
when when we get to talking about cartoonist kayfabe, I want to ask you about like the recording schedules and how that works with that because holy shit, literally every single day you guys have something popping. And also, I have the automatic subscription, so whenever I see something, like it'll be like the book this week, I'm like, oh, it's a million dollar book. Looks like I'm not going to be buying that this week. Or oh, <laughs> because honestly, you know, it's 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 that weird thing where like like we don't know that. You know, because these are just books that we have, right? I mean, and Action we got Comics them number one. And they didn't cost anything, or, they, you know, they sometimes even cost $2 or something. And then it's like, uh, yeah, you want to talk about David Cho's Slow Jams? Yeah, let me pull out my copy, okay? Like, I, I got mine close close at hand. And then uh, we did the episode and talk, talk about, like, yeah, man, I just got this at Phantom, blah, 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 blah. Not even conscious of, like, what the thing is worth or cost or anything like that. And then... Uh, you just see in the comments like this is going for nine hundred dollars on Amazon. Then it starts starts getting me thinking like we always like we always fantasize about like you know some local person that has like the comic collection that has like all sorts of like cool like games and shit. And then like as we do cartoonist kayfabe, it's like oh fuck like like we're those guys like we're those dudes. Whenever we're toast, like we have the the um, comic collections that are like. Well, one of the things, you know, like they call it like in the cartoonist kayfabe community, it's called the kayfabe effect where, you know, if something gets mentioned, it'll either skyrocket in value or, you know, whatever. But like I always go after a lot of these books because as an aspiring comic creator myself, I love learning about what makes a comic tick and listening to the dissections that you guys do of these, especially, you know, the autopsy of that death of Superman. But, um, one of the (laughs) things about it is I love also being able to discover people that I never realized, Oh shit. I'm, I really enjoy this person's work. Like when we went to Terrificon a few weeks ago in Uncasville, Connecticut, Michael Golden was there and I actually got to speak with him very briefly mention, you know, the effect that your channel has, on his work and everything, you know, with a new generation embracing his work. Dude, I went to that con hunting down the first 12 issues of Micronauts. I didn't think that that would be my plan that weekend. But guess what? It was. Yeah, that's sick, man. And That's it's, super cool. And he also got he, them, too. But I think that was in part due to a recommendation. Yeah. When we spoke to uh, Rob Liefeld. When we had the Rob father on, one of the uh, remarks was for our December episode of You Haven't Read That on our Patreon, we're going to be doing the uh, first 12 issues of Micronauts. Eddie's read them. I haven't. So the tables are turned. So <laughs> We asked yeah, him to pick what he thought might cool. be yeah, something hard to find. And you can't get it as a collection because of what Hasbro and, and yeah. rights and all that stuff. And I'm like, dude, I've been there since the very beginning. The couple of volumes are going to a different publisher and all that stuff. But the thing is, you know, in regards to, like, discovering these creators and learning, oh, my God, I really enjoy this person's work, because of you guys mentioning that Marvel fanfare with the Hulk versus Spidey, I'm learning, you know, these little things, these n- new methods of how to create a story in the, you know, X amount of parameters and also the visual interpretation. One of the things I love about that that issue itself is when you look at Spider-Man, how short and squat he is compared to uh, Hulk. And yeah. that, you know, he's got like an almost anime, like Astro Boy kind of look to it. And Eddie's like doing the nodding because he's heard me talk about this like 45 times Yeah, that times plus now. I'm like, well, you know, he's a bug. Sure. Right, yeah. Not the Micronaut that, bug, but... Yeah. That, that's the cool thing about Michael Golden is like he's a very, very thoughtful 
creator. He, like he's he's not just drawing people standing around, talking. Uh, they're doing things, and he's thinking about the the characters as characters. What are the virtues and stuff? And like one of the pieces, uh, if you, if you saw the um, that Avengers annual that we did, man, with the, with the introduction of Rogue, like one of the pieces that uh, that Chris Claremont pointed out as as being something that he absolutely loved whenever, you know, you deliver your script to a guy and then you start to see pages was uh, the spider woman, like on page like two or three when she's in the hospital and she's got like, she's got a coffee and she's just chilling against the wall. Like that, that wasn't written in the script. Uh, that could have just been her standing there kibitzing with policemen and, and nurses and stuff. But he, you know, just put a little bit more thought into the character and, and kept her, Spider-ish, um, and 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 that's just how that dude moves, man. Yeah, and you know, like very thoughtful. When we were t- when I was talking to him, uh, like at the show, I was saying, you know, like your work is phenomenal. And the comment he made was, it was basically a borderline, yeah, I know I'm the shit. And it was it was so it was cocky in the coolest way possible. It was like, yeah, I know. Why why didn't yeah. you guys realize this? I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He 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 knows the deal, man. And, and uh, you know, he says stuff like, like uh, you know, doesn't read comics or whatever. Like you know, I'm just I'm just real good at them. Like I don't read it. I'm just good at making them and shit. Like, and the thing is, like you can't deny it. You know, like no hater can come by and and say, no, I don't know, man. I don't know about this. And he you know influence a generation, influence generations. Like, uh, you know, big deal. Like when you hear Todd talk about, you know, the impact of Michael Golden on him, it's it's one of those things like, yeah, he you can definitely tell 110 percent Todd's style is predicated by Michael Golden's work. And yeah, one of the, you know, as, it, as a diehard Todd fan, it's great to see that. And it's also great to know, oh, so this is where, you know, the the stuff from the DNA comes from, you know, for sure, man. He, and, and he never denied it. And, and that was kind of like what put Michael Golden's name, like, in, in, our, in our consciousness, man, this was reading interviews and stuff with those guys, and you just see these repeating names coming up, you know, John Byrne, George Perez, Jack Kirby, Neil Adams, Michael Golden. Uh, so then when I'm at the flea market or something, looking through comics, always conscious of the people's names making this stuff, if I see a Michael Golden, I'm going to grab it. You know, if I see a John Byrne, Iron Fist, I'll grab that shit. And just develop an education with those like image dudes as my starting point. Uh, that's kind of that's kind of the culture of the kayfabe channel and how it's grown too. You know, we started off just doing Wizard magazines like one a week, uh, and just you know one video a week, um, and then it became like, well, we're here. You know, you drove all this way. Like, let's do maybe like three videos in a week, and you know, a couple show and tells. And so one person. We'll edit two videos, and one person will edit one, and oscillate back and forth every week. And it was like a growing thing from beginning with Wizard, and then, you know, dialing it back to to people like Michael Golden, the long shot Art Adams issues and stuff. And that was the thing that like McFarlane would talk about. He he loved those guys' comics, and was like, I'm gonna do a less less good version of Michael Golden or Art Adams, except I'll do it on a monthly basis as opposed to, like, one or two issues a year. And that was, like, a linchpin of his early success, man. 
And one of the things about the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel that I really appreciate is how the channel will release certain kinds of videos and then the you know the uh the plunger will be put in a little bit and they'll you know disappear for a little while in terms of new content in that style and then when something does eventually come back in that style the audience you know will react big to it just like they have with the other content and it's such a smart strategy like i love the shoot interviews but there hasn't been a shoot interview for a long time but when the shoot interview does return though i imagine it's going to be you know a big deal you know yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, the shooting is this is the function of time at this point because, I, I mean, as you can attest to just, like, putting this together with me, man, like, it, there's all this, like, back-end stuff that has to be done, uh, people's schedules, all this kind of stuff. And then, uh, you know, I'm on the which which eats up so much of my free time that I use to corral those interviews and things. And then the research involved because you, this might be the only time we ever talk to this person or that person, so you need to do, like, the best the best you can can do. So there's all this, like, reading and all kinds of stuff that has to go go down. Uh, the shoot interviews will commence, no doubt, man. We have some people in mind that we have access to and have become real good friends with um, in recent times. Uh, but it's just, it's just a function of time. You know, we're cartoonists first, and then the YouTube thing comes second. Like, that... The YouTube thing is like our Bullet Club uh, YouTube <laughs> gimmick. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just us having a presence. Like, these comics take forever to make. So let's just let people know that we exist every day. I saw a Read More Comics uh, t-shirt at Terrificon, and all I could think of was Bullet Club at that point. Like, I'm waiting. Like, there's going to be a Frederick Wortham Kenita Dick shirt sitting at a, you know, convention, and I cannot wait to uh, shake that person's hand in a socially distanced way. But Dude, <laughs> we, uh, we, I mean, we sold thousands of shirts. Like, when we only had about six or 7,000 uh, YouTube subscribers, we went to uh, Heroes Con in uh, North Carolina, probably my, one of my favorite shows. And uh, we've seen over 100 shirts. Like, like we went there, you know, we had the Cafe Weeklies and stuff, and I'm like, dude, I'm going to go down there. Like, what's, what's your over and under, man? Like, let's, let's count shirts. And we came back. It was over 100 people had Cafe shirts, and that's we only had a couple thousand subscribers. Like, we have about 40,000 more subscribers now. So, like, how many of those shirts are we going to see down there next time? You know, it's fun. And, like, in regards to uh, the content you guys publish, and, you know, when you'll talk about a creator myself, I'm getting big into Love and Rockets now because of the shoot interview you guys did with Jaime Hernandez. And listening to that interview, like, I keep going back and forth to that because also, in turn, it's getting me into 1950s, 1960s Archie comics. It's getting me into discovering what makes these comics tick. And it's so cool to see. And... I kind of equate you guys to the radio station WFMU. WFMU are the tastemakers. They point you in the direction of things that you may otherwise not know. Big Star, The Replacements. Whereas on your end, you have people like Jaime Hernandez, Michael Golden. And it's a nice, you know, reflection of what, you know, can you can show to a potential creator and help inspire them that, you know, they may not know that they needed this, you know? Yeah, it's interesting you say that stuff uh, because uh, you know we're, I'm getting your outside perspective, or you know, just like you, you're a, you're a you're you're you know not Jim or Tom or something, right? So, like for us, 
like, I don't know that we think in those terms. Like, it's like we just assume everybody digs Jaime. You know, like, like everybody we know loves that dude's work. Uh, you know, kind of same with Michael Gruden. But I absolutely do love that uh, whenever um, – I do love getting comments from people who, who haven't heard of this issue or that issue or, or um, this comic or that comic. Like, that's so freaking cool, man. And I'm almost jealous because that means you're going to get to read, I don't know, the Nuke Face Papers issues of uh, Swamp Thing for the first time. Like, oh. Oh, I, I remember that. Like, like it's, it's, it's super fun. And, the, you know, also, it also, like, you know, with stuff that I have already read, like, the videos you guys did on the Frank Miller Daredevil, both, you know, David Mazzuccelli and the, you know, just the standard Frank Miller stuff, seeing that, you know, reminded me, like, you got to go for your reread of that. And then when you end up hearing the observations you and Jim end up, you and Jim end up making throughout the episodes, it's so cool to be able to see those new perspectives and, like, Oh yeah, that's what he was talking about when he said this. Or oh, I remember when they were talking about this. Yeah, you know, we've we've been doing that privately for twenty years, uh, reading comics, getting together, talking shit, uh, and it's you know I'm, I'm not being super hyperbolic or anything. We carry that over whenever we're hanging out at conventions and, and you know travel eight hours away to North Carolina for a, a show. And the fun that we're having in those moments when we're just, like, not doing it really for, like, any kind of audience or anything, like, people just, like, like a Katamari Damashi thing, man. Like, That's a reference I didn't expect today. <laughs> <laughs> they just keep, you know, it just speaks to my age, you know. Like, my video game playing stop it, PlayStation 2. Um, like, people just, like, gather around and stuff, and it, and it becomes a party, but it's a party centered on a couple of nerds laughing and joking about, you know, different panels in Trencher comics. Uh, so then it was, it was just like, well, let's record it. You know, like uh, I, I, I saw this, I saw this uh, retro video game YouTube channel where the guy was going through Nintendo Powers, and I got this, you know, long box full of the first 75, 80 issues of Wizard, collecting dust basically. But I love looking at them. You know, let's let's break them out. Like, like this is. This is the, the stuff that excited us about growing up to become cartoonists. Let's let's indulge in that for a little bit and just talk about the headspace of that time and things like this. So it's like very natural, you know, nothing forced. Uh, had no expectations of anything. You know, so much cool stuff has come from the channel. Uh, just like, you know, the stuff that Eli Schwab and his crew do, like like the wizard zine and and image grand design and stuff like that. Like we, we never thought in a million years, man, that people would kind of come together uh, in, su in such a way and you know, put together cool books and projects and creative teams meet each other in our comment section and on, like, the Facebooks and, and Instagram uh, accounts and things. So it's, it's, it's pretty wild stuff. And I know you mentioned uh, grand, uh, image grand design how there's going to be a, you know, there's actually going to be a follow-up, uh, Darkest Image, and, you know, myself and Ryan Tavares, we're both working together on a story. It's it's just so cool to be able to see that so much has been created as a result of the cartoonist kayfabe community. And, like, myself, again, I ended up taking, you know, online courses at the Kubert uh, School for comic book writing just to give it a shot. And then on the flip side of also being, you know, 
trying to learn how to do comic book inking digitally and also going into like maybe trying to improve my drawing skills. And it's so cool to be able to see what you guys have done as a community and just inspire so many people, myself included. Yeah, you know, I'm going to uh, just just for the purposes of the conversation and kind of be clear, like I'm going to kind of divorce myself from from the uh, from the community in a way, because like I don't see it all and I don't you know, want to position myself as like being like at the top of that or anything. It's just a cool community grew from the channel, but from where I sit, and I think I could speak for Jim and Tom as well. Like you're just a couple homies that hang out on Thursdays and we talk comics. So like, I just don't want to um, be like the, the, um, you know, the main, the main uh, guy or uh, the main face behind like the community of this group from cartoonist cafe, because I just don't see, I, I purposely like don't pay attention to like the Facebook groups and stuff like that, because I just don't want it to influence my ideas for the channel. So I just wanted to be clear about that part. Yeah, absolutely. It's very smart to do, to be completely honest, because what ends up happening is you pick what you want to do. You don't want to, you know, listen to what other people might say like, Oh, you should do this, do this, do this. It's, Again, it's so smart because then you end up surprising people with content they may otherwise not have known they wanted. I'm a I'm a fan of uh, of Howard Stern, and uh, I remember that there was like the Stern Fan Network, and he made the mistake of like going on there a couple of times, and he's like, "It's called the Stern Fan Network, and all I'm seeing is stuff about like from people who hate me," you know. And I don't think I had that experience. Like, I, I don't think I've seen anything negative there. But uh, why, why why risk it? You know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things, like, you look at so many comic creators, especially in recent memory, like, they're leaving social media and going over, like, to things like Substack, and you can't blame them. Yeah, not, uh, not at all. Like, uh, like there are things, like, I just use, like, social media for me is is a microphone. It's a, it's a kind of a one-way street where I put stuff out there, let you know that I'm alive, but I see almost no feedback. Like, I see zero feedback on, on Twitter or anything like that, because I mean, that just seems to be the place where the, like, the kind of biggest goofballs live. Yeah. And, like, why, why do I ever have to, like, subject myself to, you know, the, the dregs of the Internet's thoughts and opinions? Uh, they, you know, it's never served me well, and uh, ne- I can't see how it would. So, uh, you know, just keep your toes tapped and do your own thing. Um, I never wanted to be a member of, you know, a crew that would have me type shit, man. So we, we made our own thing over there on, on YouTube. And a lot of cool stuff has come from it. We've met uh, great people. I've made legitimate friends, um, you know, thanks to the community that, that sort of built up from there. Just, you know, very naturally getting to know some cool people. So uh, it's – and, you know, the sales for Red Room are – the best sales for Fantagraphics comic books in, in, in their history. So it serves a lot of good functions. And it's ab- and again, once again, it's absolutely well-deserved because the story is so goddamn intense. And it's it's something that you keep wanting to see what is next, you know? Yeah, that's the fun of making it, man. Uh, I'm, I've, these, these past, I'd say, three issues or so, um, that, that have not seen the light of day, they're going to be a part of the next miniseries. Uh, I'm sort of developing them, developing them in a Marvel method kind of kind of scenario where I have my bullet points for every page, 
and I'm more visually laying them out, and then I'm going to go in at the end and kind of like, you know, fill in captions and dialogue and stuff. And the function of that is you just have a very fast-moving, visually interesting-looking comic, and that just is the opposite of the writer-driven comics of the mainstream today. You know, a lot of talking heads these days. Eddie and myself just now both had our eyebrows go up when you mentioned the Marvel method. That is <laughs> very much, that is such an interesting idea. I like seeing, I like hearing stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because, like, as a creator of comics, not just, like, a penciler, uh, you gotta you gotta remain engaged with the process the entire time. It's a, it's a marathon, you know, not a sprint. So, like when I'm laying it out, Marvel method style. Uh, that's 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 one mode of of meditation and thinking. And then I'll put on my writer hat when it's time to do that part, you know. And and it's a different muscle that's being flexed. And and I never do any one component long enough for it to get boring. You know, I just it's it's a way to keep constantly engaged in the material. I think and, and, then, mentioned... and, then, and then the result is that you have a visually interesting comic rather than just like I said, mm-hmm. standing around talking. I think early on in this interview, Ed, you mentioned maybe if not, um, could you tell us how much more you have to look forward to Red Room wise? It's already put away the next three or so series or more than that, and what else, if anything else, is uh, is ahead for you, projects or otherwise? Yeah, so uh, what we're on the what I'm on the hook for right now is uh, there's going to be a baker's dozen of comics total, including the free comics. So, so uh, every four issues um, they'll be collected in a trade. So there'll be three sets of that. You know, the next mini series is going to be called uh, Trigger Warnings. Um, that's where the Rat Queen story. If you pay attention to my social media, that's going to be an issue one. Issue two of that is going to be the Pumpkins. Uh, you know, Mickey Mallory type couple of killers. And uh, there, then there'll be a third miniseries. Uh, after that, you know, that leaves me open to either do more or uh, jump to my next idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still too early for me to, to talk about that part, but I think it'll be pretty obvious uh, and it would make a lot of sense whenever you guys see me start to like post that kind of imagery on my socials so now ed before we go first off thank you so much for your time today oh such a pleasure man super fun i went off on a tangent thinking in my brain pumpkins all right where could that be speculate it's pretty obvious oh krampus or pumpkin spice lattes yes. oh, oh yes okay all right terror terror turkeys i mean we're in a holiday arc maybe. it is it is almost ug season but <laughs> where they all look like han solo but <laughs> yeah man in a tauntaun boots, no doubt. <laughs> and before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media, and what is that Patreon link? Oh, yeah, it's uh, patreon.com slash edpiscor, and just Google edpiscor. You're going to find all my stuff. The link tree has everything. Uh, easy to find, man. You know, Google edpiscor. You'll be able to get to my Instagram. I'm more active there. Like I said, the Twitter is just me putting blasts out there so i don't really interact with anybody through that uh the patreon i put out the comics before before they hit paper so you know if you're ravenous for the next issues or something like that you would want to jump there and take a snoop um and cartoonist kayfabe every every day man there's a fresh episode 
still debating on which one to put live tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Make sure you read Asterios Polyp, uh, everybody. Uh, oh, you're, my, uh, my buddy, years and years ago, when we were both like trying to break into doing things with comics, that was one of the books he first got. And I just look at him like, oh, the Daredevil Born Again guy. That does look kind of good. And I never did anything, and I can't find it anywhere. What the hell? <laughs> I don't know what the <laughs> yeah, point of that story was. It's, it's fun because it's just it's so different than that kind of material. Like He's just such a capital A artist and just very uh, curious and, and uh, risk-taking. You know, I appreciate that guy's work so much. Last year at a fanfare, uh, it was at this uh, high school, this uh, design school in New York City, uh, Neil Adams' former school. They actually had David like speak for the class, like, and it's him just teaching people about the art of comics and how to be able to convey convey different things. And I'll send you the link on YouTube. It's phenomenal to watch. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. Like, I think I think there's uh, there's like two or three different things, and if it's like you know, one of the like hour plus gimmicks. Like I, like I absolutely have seen it. I love it. Uh, there's, there's a couple different things, man. And, uh, what, what a embarrassment of riches we have, man, with, with these guys being recorded, shared on YouTube, uh, spilling their brains out, you know, like, uh, I use that stuff to keep me company while I draw comics every day, you know, some version of that, man. Like if it's, Klaus Jansen and Frank Miller doing a piece at SVA in front of the students or, or you know, an interview with, between, you know, conversation between Mick McMahon, Dave Gibbons, and Brian Bolland over on the 2080 YouTube channel. It's, like, it's unbelievable to me. It's what I always, like, it's beyond my wildest dreams as a kid. Like, I never spoke about comics to anybody until I was 20, you know, 21. Uh, it was just like a very private thing. And I remember like laying in bed at night, like if I just met one other person who likes comics the way that I do, it would, it would double my comic book neural capacity or something, you know, be <laughs> twice as smart about the medium and my knowledge of the medium and stuff. And it's like, now I just live in it. Like now comics is a culture to me. You know, I live it, I breathe it. Uh, it takes up a big giant footprint in the house here. And, uh, on days where I'm not drawing comics or freaking recording cartoonist kayfabe episodes, you know? So it's super all-encompassing. Freaking love it. Uh, wouldn't know what to do without it. And just the ability of being able to get all of that content in one fell swoop, it's, it's amazing. I love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I said, every day, man, I'm listening to something, dude. Like, uh or Spiegelman, tell me what the deal is, man. Uh, even, even you know, when like the unfortunate thing with like all the long form Alan Moore content that you could find, the unfortunate thing is it's all about like snake gods and mages and shit like that. And 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 it's him saying that like if you go by this philosophy, then time is a solid. And just like talking that kind of stuff, like. Oh, man, can we just talk about, like, panel-to-panel transitions one time or something, man? Have you read Alan Moore's Jerusalem yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got I got both versions, uh, the the three-book version in the slipcase and the, and the one giant one that, you know, can legitimately murder a person and smack <laughs> them in the head. I have got that the one. audio book. Um, you know, I use that to kind of keep me company sometimes, man, because it's like, you know, 40 hours or 60 hours of company. Um, yeah, love it. 
If you need an hour and 54 minutes, I can supply you with our Chris Claremont interview where he answered all of five questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, 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 we've done that one time, man. And, and I've you know been to his house several times as well. And, and uh, you know, got, got one or two words in edgewise. But listen, man, I love it. The other thing I love about him is, um, you know, when it's not like on the air uh, and, and he feels more free, he's just an idea machine. Like, and it makes so much sense with a guy who was like writing so many comics per month and stuff, how like the stuff that just kind of like flows from his imagination is constant and uh, very inspiring, actually. It's funny because I was listening to his uh, comic book greats with Stan Lee. And like, it's funny because this is like 1990, 1991. And he's talking about like, essentially he saved the comic book industry. Then like he's responsible for all of these things. He helped revitalize the industry. Then I'm like, Boy, look at your country. Like, you know what I mean? Like, those contributions are going to mean just as much, you know, even more so in like 20 years, 30 years. It's kind of crazy. Uh, yeah, he, t- he taught me, uh, he, you know, like, uh, he was like, uh, I remember him saying something like, yeah, you know, I don't even read a comic book anymore. You know, just like Michael Gold, I don't, I don't read comics anymore. And I was like, why not, man? You, 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 you're not into the medium or whatever. And he taught me the word solipsistic. He's like, I'm solipsistic. And I'm like, what's that mean? He's like, Says something about like, you know, I think I'm better than everybody, or like something like that. I thought it was about and a like, that's, that's that's pretty badass. And he's like that on that on that comic book rates thing, man. He's oh, just yeah. like very laissez faire about like, yeah, eight point six million. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yes, I bought my mother a Cessna Bonanza private airplane. Mm-hmm. When yep. I hear about the airplane, that is one of the like that is one of the most gangster things I could ever hear. Yeah, I bought an airplane with X Men money. Yeah, man. I remember um, when I went to the Qbert School. Uh, Adam Kubert was doing, I think, like Ultimate X Men or something, and like with his royalty money for uh, for issue one, had a, um or no, you know what? It, I think it was royalty money from Wolverine seventy five where he gets the uh, bone like the, the adamantium that gets leached. Like he bought this real big fly motorcycle, still a vast departure from a Cessna Bonanza. But, you know, to get to get that kind of windfall of money uh, that you weren't expecting in a month, pretty dope stuff. Mm-hmm. The funniest thing is this episode, by the way, did not even touch the surface of all of the things I wanted to talk about, including a little bit of stuff about Harvey Picar. But I think that's going to put a bow on this episode. Ed, once again, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad we made it happen. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Ed Tiskor. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. Obsessed with Marvel, with our guest, Ed Pisker. Thank you. It's question number 1304, which reads, which member of the X-Men once wore a mohawk? Choices are. (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) Wolverine. This one's an an insult. Wolverine, Rogue, Storm, or Bishop? Well, obviously it's choice E, long shot, because of all the different hairstyles. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, this this one's an insult, actually. Uh, it, it, it's a storm. I'm going to go with the guest choice. I am also thinking about some X-Men history that I'm familiar with. Letter C, is it Storm? It is! Well, that's a good start. I guess the rest See, is like, all I, downhill. I had all that bravado, now, now it's all downhill from there. It is. <laughs> they were going to suck the rest of it all away. <laughs> all right, in panel five on page 18. Hey, now, 
it, that you wouldn't be surprised that would possibly happen with this. So yeah, or we hey do now. that in the uh, Fantastic Voyage, perhaps. Okay, fifteen oh eight question reads: Who destroyed the Atlantean city beneath the Antarctic Ocean? Yep. Choices are Destiny, Surface Dwellers with Atomic Tests, Naga as in N A G A, or the U.S. Navy. Again, who destroyed the Atlantean city beneath the Antarctic Ocean? Was it Destiny? Surface dwellers with atomic tests, Naga, or the U.S. Navy. I'm just going to take a shot, man, and say. Uh, and, and by the way, like I, I think that the, the surface dwellers in the Navy could be the same. So, like I call BS on that question a little bit. Ah. Uh, and I'm going to go with. I'm, I'm going to say B. The uh, surface dwellers with the atomic gimmick. The surface dwellers. I'm as well. Okay. All right. So we're going to go along and say letter B. Is it? No. The answer is destiny. Density? Yeah. Destiny. Density? You are my density. That's uh, Back to the Future. Yes, okay. But Destiny was a thing from Young Frankenstein. And also a terrible game. So, really? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. I'm just making that up is what Peter sounds like. Okay. It was by Bungie, and it's not so that it's great. So it's one for two. We head down to question number 461. Booyaka, Here it booyaka. is. Which superpower of Spider-Man 2009, that's what it says, did the present-day Spider-Man briefly possess? I think there's a typo here. I think it might need to say 2099. But which superpower yeah. did the present-day Spider-Man briefly possess? A fast healing ability, organic web shooters, retractable claws, or fangs that secrete poison? <laughs> I'm going to say the organic web shooters. Okay. Yeah, same thing, because that was probably, like, around a time they're trying to copy, you know. Oh, look, uh, Tugboat Toby's got him in the movie, so let's do that. Yeah, I think it should say 2099. It does say 2009 in italics, Spider-Man 20. All right, so we're going to go with Organic Web Shooters, letter B. That is correct. Two for nice. three. Two for that three. That was like pure guess, man. I, I Pretty much. barely ever read those comics. I almost went with the uh, Fangs, though, because he's probably been a vampire. You never know. He's been a Dracula every once in a while. There was that cool uh, doppelganger uh, Spider-Man, yeah. like after the Eric Larson issues of, of the adjectiveless Spider-Man, where it had like four arms, oh, that's crazy the, eyes. And the stuff. one from, uh, what do you call it, uh, Maximum Carnage? Yeah, yeah totally. See, dude, we had uh, Mark Flitman, the producer of that game, on, and as well as the uh, lead singer of Green Jelly talking about that game. Amazing stuff. Yeah, that's my jam, dude. Like that freaking Little Pigs video, man, That that's like, that's my fifth fifth sixth grade life his reaction uh to us when we when i brought the point of uh his album serial killers and how it had all those brightly colored you know serial color things on there and he's like no one's ever said that to me <laughs> <laughs> all it, right man. Rhett. question number four let's do this and i think i have the answer I like how eddie's the equivalent of like a cane just like pulling me off of the stage it's like very vulnerable. no that you would feel <laughs> it would not be pleasant who sorry where were the new warriors killed philadelphia pennsylvania Newark, New Jersey, Stanford, Connecticut, New York City. Oh, uh, Stanford, because this is Civil War. You didn't give the guest the first shot. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea, so I'll go with uh, Pete. Stanford, Connecticut. Unless, unless he just threw a red herring at me. No, I'm going to say saying Stanford myself. Pete. Yeah. The answer is Stanford, <laughs> Connecticut. That's exactly right. Yeah. We did miss out on some comedy because I was going to say Newark and then go on a Newark spiel, but. Well, you can saved. if you want. <laughs> I've got my Sea Caucus one. I thought it was Newark, as in Delaware, but okay. That's our four questions. We got three out of four. I'm liking that. 
Yeah, nice, man. Shows what I know about Atlanteans. I think that's also the kayfabe effect, that we managed to get more questions right this time. I'm loving it. Ba-da-da-da-da-da. 